Heavenly Father, um, thank you that all Scripture is inspired by, your, by you uh, and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And we pray indeed that this morning the Scripture would do its good work in our hearts and lives to your glory. Amen. Well, uh, we're returning to our series uh, in Romans, which we parked just before Easter. So welcome back. Uh, In our first five chapters of Romans, uh, Paul has been explaining the gospel. Uh, It's been startling, it's radical, and it's totally unique. Uh, The gospel stands apart from all other world religions and all other world philosophies. It's basically this, uh, salvation is received, not achieved. Uh, Salvation is not achieved on the basis of our merit or our goodness. It is received as an undeserved gift. And that gift comes, of course, through faith in Christ. Uh, I remember explaining this to a fellow student uh, when I was at university many years ago. I can still recall his response today. Uh, It's common to what many people say when they first hear the gospel of grace explained. He said this, If salvation is by sheer grace, and it has nothing to do with how you live, why not then just live any way you want? Well, it was a good question. Uh, Isn't grace a license for gratification? Uh, Where is the power Uh, and the motivation to change. Uh, What would you say in response to my friend? Well, the question that he's posing is logical, uh, and it's reasonable. And indeed, Paul anticipates it. And at the close of chapter 5... There we go. It's better on that side, I think. Got it. Uh, At the close of of chapter 5, Paul has... Thank you. Where was I? Um, Question, it's a very reasonable question, logical. Uh, Paul anticipates it at the close of chapter 5. Paul has concluded this. Uh, Remember verse 20. uh, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Uh, And so so now Paul poses the obvious question in chapter 6, verse 1, the next verse. And he says this. uh, What shall we say then? Uh, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Uh, In his answer, he doesn't beat around the bush. Verse 2, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So there's the key idea in this whole section, uh, which the rest of chapter 6 will unpack. Uh, The question is this, what on earth does Paul mean when he says that Christians have, and I quote, died to sin. Uh, Does he mean that the desire to sin has died? That Christians are in some way immune to the appeal and the power of sin? Uh, Is he saying that for the Christian, uh, temptation is a thing of the past? Well, I don't know about you, but that's not consistent with my experience. I wish it was. But it's also not consistent with chapter 6 of Romans. If Christians were now freed from all temptation, why would Paul go on in verses 12 to 14 to exhort Christians not to sin, as he does? So the question remains, in what sense can it be said that a Christian has died to sin? 
And what we're going to see is that he explains further in verses 3 to 10. Uh, now, before we look more closely at the, at the text, firstly, uh, a few opening comments. Uh, our passage today talks of a truth that many Christians have either never realized or have forgotten. It's striking when you notice how many times in this passage Paul talks about knowing or what we should know. So look at verse 3. Or, don't you know that? Uh, Verse 6. For we know that. Uh, Verse 9, you've got it. For we know that. So on a need-to-know basis, uh, the passage contains a truth that every Christian needs to know. And every Christian needs to remember. If we know this, and if we remember this, then we won't be asking the question, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? You see, knowing and remembering this will help Christians to mature there and live lives that say no to sin and yes to increasing Christ-likeness. Maybe you are familiar with the popular TV series, Who Do You Think You Are? It's been hugely successful. It's, of course, a documentary reality genealogy genealogy series. It was uh, originated and developed by the BBC, bless their hearts, uh, and has been franchised and adapted in many countries internationally. Uh, In each episode, a celebrity traces their family tree. In season six, episode one of the Australian version series, uh, it's all about Andrew Denton. And Andrew Denton says the following, and I quote, as you get older, you get curious about where is your place in the universe. There comes a point in everybody's life that you have to try to fix yourself in time and space. And the only way to do that is to find your story and make sense of it. Do you see what he's saying? Uh, To know who you are, to make sense of who you are, requires you to understand your story, your origins, to go back. And in Romans 6, we are going to see that every Christian needs to go back in time to those events of 2,000 years ago. Uh, They need to know their story. And in so doing, they make sense of who they now are and it will shape the way they live. Because, you see, these events are an integral part of a Christian's story, and they carry a profound impact in their present life. So, let's dig down then into Romans 6 to see what every Christian needs to know. Uh, We're going to break our passage down into three sections. We've already looked at the first. Uh, That was verses 1 to 2, which was uh, the question And the answer, just to remind you, here it is again, chapter 6, verse 1. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? That's the first section, the question and the answer. We're going to break the rest of the passage down into two more sections, verses 3 to 10, the elaboration of the answer, and verses 11 to 14, the exhortation in light of the answer, what we should then do, what difference it should make. So, uh, let's move on to verses 3 to 10, the elaboration of the answer. Now, we're going to need to be patient 
as what may not be clear at first will become clearer as we work our way through it. Uh, it's a bit like a jigsaw. Uh, we have to have all the pieces on the board until we get the full picture. And we won't get that until we get to verses 10. So please uh, bear with me as we work through this together. So, uh, verses 3 to 5 present the heart of what Paul is saying. Uh, let's start with verse 3. He says this, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 3 says that in some way, all those who have put their faith in Christ have participated in Christ's death. It says they've been baptized into his death. Uh, In speaking of baptism, Paul is not attributing any magical saving power to baptism. It's simply another way of referring to somebody's conversion through their faith in Christ. If you like, baptism is an external visible symbol of a person's invisible inner faith. Uh, Verse 4 then gives the purpose for this participation in Christ's death. Look at verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Why did the Christian die? In order that they can live a new life. Just as Christ died and was buried, so also the Christian has died and has been buried. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, so in some sense also the Christian is raised from the dead. The Christian is given new life. On the 30th of June, 2005, Patrick McDermott, Olivia Newton-John's boyfriend of nine years, was reported to have drowned after disappearing at sea off the Californian coast. Uh, Suspicions were raised when it was discovered that Mr. McDermott was in severe financial difficulties. Eleven years later, investigative journalists located Mr. McDermott alive and well in a small idyllic coastal village in western Mexico, going by the name of Pat Kim. Well, Mr. McDermott had committed what is called pseudocide. That pseudocide is where a person fakes their death in order to move on to a new phase of life under a new identity. If you're tempted to do it, I'd suggest you don't date a celebrity because they'll probably be hot on your tail afterwards. Uh, Paul is saying that in some sense a Christian is someone who has undergone a death experience so that they may start a new life. Uh, The difference to Mr. McDermott is that there is no faking required. How is it possible that the Christian can die and be raised again? How is it possible that there is this link between us now and these events 2,000 years ago of Christ's death and resurrection? And the answer is through our spiritual union with Christ. Uh, Paul frequently refers to Christians as being in Christ. It's referring to this doctrine of union with Christ. And in verse 5, he expresses it in different terms, in terms of being united 
with Christ. Look at verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Do you see, incredibly, there is a dynamic link between what happened nearly 2,000 years ago and what happens the moment a person puts their faith in Christ. Through the spiritual union with Christ, in some way, they personally participate in what happened back then. So, in what sense can the Christian be said to have died and to now have new life? Well, verses 6 to 7 elaborates on what the death means, and verses 8 and 9 expand on what the life means. Let's start with the first, verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with. Uh, We've got two terms in that sentence which we need to dig down on, uh, two terms we need to try and understand. Uh, The first question is, what is the old self? Well, the old self is what I was before I became a Christian. It's me as I was then, with my view of life and my view of reality, all in rebellion against God. And Paul is saying the old self has been crucified with Christ. And in some sense is now dead and buried. It's gone, as Australians say. Gone. Uh, The next question is, uh, what is this body of sin? Well, if we sneak a peek ahead to verse 12, we get a clue. Because in verse 12, Paul is going to exhort this. Uh, Therefore, uh, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you may obey its evil desires. Uh, What is the body of sin? Simply put, it is the body when it is controlled by sinful desires. Uh, Unlike Eastern religions, uh, Christianity does not view the physical body or its physical desires as evil. Uh, They are both made by God to bring him glory. However, they can be used for evil. Uh, Sin can commandeer the desires of the body to its own evil ends. And that is the body of sin. So back to verse 6 again. Uh, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. Uh, The phrase done away with is probably more accurately translated uh, rendered powerless. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. So pulling together, uh, through our faith union with Christ, our old self has died with Christ. Why? So that the propensity for using our body for sin may be deprived of its power. And this then fits with the language of freedom and slavery used in the remainder of verse 6 and then verse 7. Let's look at it again. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So you see, the death of the old self leads to new freedom. And now we're getting close to be able to answer our question of verse 2. What does it mean 
for the Christian to have died to sin. And what we're seeing is this. It's actually a release from an enslaving reign and rule. Uh, Verse 5 concluded with talk of two spiritual realms of rule, uh, the reign of sin and the reign of grace. Uh, Look at 5 verse 21. Uh, Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see, before somebody becomes a Christian, their life is under the reign of sin. Uh, They are enslaved, they are helpless, they are without hope. Uh, They are guilty and they are condemned before a holy God. And they are destined for eternal death. But through their union with Christ, by faith, all that has changed. The old self has died. And as verse 7 says, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Uh, The word translated freed here has a legal sense. It means uh, to be declared not guilty, uh, to be justified. So once a person becomes a Christian, they are no longer under the ruling power of sin. Uh, Sin is still present in their lives, but it no longer calls the shots. You see, sin is now fighting a rearguard action, which it can't ultimately win. So you see, when a person who is not a Christian sins, they are acting in accordance with who they are. They are a slave to sin, and it is entirely consistent. But when a Christian sins, they are acting against who they now are. They have been freed from the enslaving power of sin, and therefore, if a Christian sins, it because, it's because they don't realize who they are or they have forgotten who they now are and what has been done for them in Christ. Uh, the great uh, expositional preacher, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, has uh, written a great commentary series on Romans, and he has the following illustration. It's very helpful. He says this, uh, Take the case of the poor slaves in the USA a hundred years ago. Uh, They were in a condition of slavery. Uh, Then, as a result of the American Civil War, uh, slavery was abolished in the United States. But what actually then happened? Uh, All slaves, young and old, were given their freedom. However, many of the older ones who had endured long years of servitude found it very difficult to understand their new status. Uh, They heard the announcement that slavery was abolished and that they were free. But many times in their subsequent lives, many of them did not realize it. Uh, When they saw their old master coming near, they began to quake and tremble and to wonder whether they were going to be sold. Uh, The doctor then continues, uh, the point is, that you can still be a slave experientially even when you are no longer a slave legally. He says, whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us here through his word that if we are united with Christ, we are no longer under the rule and the reign of sin.
He concludes, therefore, if we fall into sin as Christians, as we do, it is simply because we do not realize who we are. We need to realize it, to remember it, and to reckon it. So let's continue. Uh, Verses 6 to 7, elaborated on our participation in Christ's death. Verses 8 and 9 now elaborates on our participation in Christ's resurrection. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Through our faith union with Christ, we know that we also will share in his resurrection life. Uh, There is both a present and a future aspect of the life which we now share. Uh, In the present, of course, we have the indwelling spirit, and the spirit gives life and vitality to our spirits. And in the future, at Christ's return, our mortal bodies will be raised back to life, immortal. So verse 10 then acts as a summary of this whole section of verses 5 to 9. And it says this. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So uh, we've seen Paul's elaboration of the answer. And we now move to his final section in verses 11 to 14, the exhortation in light of the answer. So what difference should our union with Christ in his death and his resurrection life make? Look at verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourselves. It's a call to use your mind, to actively consider, to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. It's what we need to know and what we need to remember. Count yourself. Do you realize that we have just come to the first exhortation in the whole letter of Romans? It's taken five chapters and ten verses. This is the first point in the letter of Romans where Paul has told us to do something. Count yourselves dead to sin. Uh, Prior to this in Romans, Paul has not exhorted his readers to do anything. Instead, he has taught them the gospel. Of course, we've seen, haven't we? He's taught us about our desperate, hopeless, sinful state if we are without Christ. He's taught us about Christ, the atoning sacrifice, the one who is for us righteousness from God. He's taught us about how forgiveness and freedom come through faith in Christ. He's been teaching us the gospel for five chapters and ten verses. Do you know what that means? Christian behavior has to be grounded in Christian identity. We need to understand who we are in Christ before we can answer the question, 
How should we now live? Uh, between 2001 and 2003, uh, I spent those years teaching at a church in Indonesia. I recall a conversation with a teenage member of the congregation after having just preached a sermon. Uh, she said to me, James, just tell us what to do. Just tell us what to do. Uh, well, I commend her desire to live as a good Christian life, but the question, just tell us what to do. Uh, what should I make of that? Uh, what would Jesus say to her? What would Jesus do? Or more to the point, what would Paul say to her? What would Paul do? I think uh, Paul in his response would probably say, absolutely not. I'm not just going to tell you what to do. You must first understand who you are in Christ before you can ever then think about what you should do. You see, for Christians, there is a danger that our thinking becomes quite pragmatic. We just want to know what to do. And yet we can't short-circuit the process. True, lasting change comes from a deepening understanding of who we are. Who we are in Christ. Uh, verses 12 to 13 are all about what Christians should do. But they start with a very important word. Therefore. And the therefore is anchoring Christian living in the Christian teaching of verses 1 to 11. What Paul is saying is this, in the light of being dead to sin and alive in Christ, verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Uh, the question we need to ask at this stage is, what does Paul mean when he says, do not let sin reign? <laughs> I'm sure you've heard of the great 4th century theologian and church leader, Augustine. Uh, he used a very helpful illustration of a horse and a rider to explain Satan's hold over people. Uh, Augustine said that before somebody becomes a Christian, it's as if they are the horse and Satan is the rider. Uh, Satan has, has the reins and he controls the bit in the mouth. And that person is therefore enslaved to Satan's rule. And they sin under compulsion. When a person comes to faith in Christ, it's as if the reins are taken away from Satan. He no longer controls the bit in the mouth. Christ is now in the saddle. But Satan is not absent. He's still there and he whispers into the horse's ear, and he seeks to commandeer the desires of a Christian's body to his own destructive evil ends. So that's why Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. As I've already said, our desires are God-given and our bodies are God-given. Uh, However, our desires can be commandeered for evil purposes. Think about our desire for food. Uh, food ensures our bodies receive the energy and the nutrition they need. But when sin distorts that desire, it becomes gluttony, a bulimia, or anorexia. Think about our desire for drink. 
That is good and healthy. But when sin commandeers that desire, it may become alcoholism or caffeine addiction. Think about our desire for sexual satisfaction. It's a God-given desire for procreation and marital joy. However, when sin captures it, this desire can mutate into lustful pornography and into sexual immorality. I think about our desire for rest and sleep. It's a good and right desire. It ensures our bodies recharge. But if sin captures that desire, it can mutate into laziness. Think about our desire to talk, to use our tongues. Uh, it's a good and wholesome aspect of relationships. It's how God has made us. But that desire can be commandeered by sin. And our tongues can be mutated to be used for gossip and for slander. Paul says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. The Christian has a choice. Uh, to whom will we offer the parts of our body in service? Will it be to sin? Or will it be to God? Look at verses 13 to 14. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. To whom will we offer ourselves? To, to Satan or to Christ? So how does the Christian win the battle? How does the Christian make the right choice? We remember who we are. We remind ourselves of what we need to know on a need-to-know basis. My old self, which was enslaved to sin, has been killed. I am now living a new life with Christ in the saddle. I now have a choice to live in the light of this new phase of my life. Which will I choose? On the 4th of February, at 2006, I became Tracy's husband. But what if I continued to live as if I was still a single guy, to flirt with other girls, and to act as if I was unmarried? Well, I would very soon be an ex-husband of Tracy, but that's not the point I'm making. The point is this. Having got married, I can still choose to live as if I were a single person, but it would be totally inconsistent with my new identity and my new phase of life. I am now Tracy's husband. And there is true joy and satisfaction in living out that new role and that new identity. So, Christians can still choose to sin, but it is totally inconsistent with their new phase of life. Prior to his conversion... Uh, Augustine, who I've already referred to, uh, lived a fairly wild, hedonistic lifestyle. Uh, he was sexually promiscuous and fathered a child out of wedlock. 
after his conversion, one of his former lovers met him one day and tried to entice him into another affair with him, with her. Uh, sensing his resistance, uh, she cried, Augustine, it is I. To which he replied, yes, but it is not I. Augustine knew that his old self had been crucified with Christ. It was dead and buried. He was now freed from his slavery to sin. He could say no and live joyfully for his new master Christ. Who do you think you are? And will you live in the light of it? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, what we've seen in your words today is deep and profound. It speaks of something which is unseen, our spiritual union with Christ. And through that, our participation in his death and resurrection. And that in some way then actually enacting a death in our life of the old self and a new birth, a new life, a new self, a new identity, a new phase of life. We pray each of us here would have that new phase of life through faith in Christ. And that we would then live in the light of that new phase, joyfully saying no to sin, living out our new identity and reveling in the new freedom we have, being released from our slavery to sin and now living with Christ as our Lord and our King. Help us to do that, we pray, for our eternal benefit and for your glory. Amen.